3: Jessica Largie has worked for Michael Cimarusti at Providence, Paul Shoemaker at Bastide, and David Kinch at Manresa. It was at the Three Michelin Star Manresa in Los Gatos, California, where she rose to chef de cuisine and began to really gather some personal accolades. While at Manresa, she was named a Zagat 30 Under 30 in Eater Young Gun, Star Chef Rising Star, and also was the James Beard Award winner for Rising Star Chef of the Year. Obviously she's wildly talented. I'm excited to have her here on the line to talk about her rise through some of the finest kitchens in the United States and the world and her new project, Simone, a restaurant in the arts district of LA that will be opening later this year. Jessica, welcome to the line.
4: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've eaten at Roberta's a lot, but I've never been inside the booth. So.
3: You've, you've seen into the booth, yeah. and now you'll get to look out, and everyone will look at you like you're sort of in a I've museum. I've actually
4: sat at that table a few times and been like, I wonder what it's like on the other side in there.
3: Well, here you are. Welcome <laughs> to Heritage Radio, Thank uh, you. the glamorous booth you're inside. Uh, tell me a little bit about Fillmore. You grew up in Linden, Ventura County, California. What was your childhood like?
4: My childhood was amazing. Um, It's a really small town, so I would say once I got to being a teenager, it got pretty boring. Um, But as far as, it's a really safe place, and I have a lot of siblings. There's four of us girls. I have a half-brother and a half-sister, too. Um, So it was a great place to raise a big family, and everybody there is pretty much agriculturally based. My parents weren't. They both grew up in L.A. and wanted to move somewhere really safe, so... It was awesome, though. Everybody I knew lived on a ranch or a farm, and we could play in the orchards and just, like, have a blast. It was pretty, um, I think it's rare to find a place where you can just kind of let your kids roam free. Like, we got to there, so it was it was a great childhood.
3: It's cool, because I think when people say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm from L.A., because when you would be, ex- you wouldn't say, I'm from Ventura County, probably. You'd say, I'm from L.A., right? And so people, I yeah. think, assume that that's just, like, suburban sprawl, but it really does get into the country quite quickly when you move past you know the, the, the true valley. suburbs yeah. of the valley and so that's cool you got to kind of run free and be out in in nature uh when did you start getting interested in food was it something that was important to your family was it were you sort of the the lone wolf black sheep that got interested very early in food
4: I got interested really early, but I think a big part of that was um, we cooked dinner and ate dinner together every single night. And my mom was, my, both of my parents are amazing cooks, and um, they, my mom had a big garden when we were little, and we had a lot of fruit trees, and so we would do a lot of projects with her at home in that way, but yeah, they cooked every night, and I took a liking to it very young. Like I was so fascinated with it when I was even four and five years old. You know, I made scrambled eggs against my parents' wishes by myself one morning, and that kind of just started it all. And so eating together
3: as a family is something that my family did as well that I also credit with my interest in food. And I guess when we're kids, we don't really think it's the way, right? Mm -hmm. But were you... Aware or did you have any inkling that you know your your friends weren't eating that way, or was sort of everyone in that area coming together and eating dinner as a family? Because me growing up I'm from the suburbs of Detroit, for example, mm-hmm. most of my friends didn't right? They were like pizza families or they definitely didn't eat together and if they did, maybe they ate in front of the TV, which wasn't allowed in my house but yeah it's an important it's an important aspect of really connecting with food at a young age, you might not realize it, but like, you know, you finish your vegetables that, that exposes you to different things rather than your parents just throwing their hands up and saying like, whatever, just put something in the microwave, eat whatever you want, you know?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, even when I was young, recognized it really quickly that a lot of my friends didn't eat dinner every night with their parents and it wasn't a fresh cooked meal and like, Where I grew up is very predominantly Latino, so it was fun going to friends' houses after school. Their grandmothers would usually like cook us Mexican food, which was pretty awesome. That rules. Yeah, yeah, it was so great. Just walk in the door and get handed tacos and this and that, and it was it was awesome. But um, yeah, a lot of my friends didn't do that, and when I would stay at friends' houses, and they'd be like, "Oh, we're just going to order pizza," I'm like, "You get to order pizza! Like, (laughs) we never get pizza, you know?" But my mom was. She was so great to us in the sense that, like, we didn't even really eat much processed food growing up. We, when we asked for snacks, she would give us, like, carrots and cucumbers and... That was our snack. Gotcha. Raw bell pepper, you know.
3: That's, you know, there's that division. Like, what do you get for snacks? We got Oreos. We got carrots. It's like you can find out a lot about a person by (laughs) what their, you know, fifth grade lunch looked like.
4: Yeah. And it made us, all of my sisters and I really love vegetables, which is awesome. Like we weren't, we were never shy or picky about it. We just ate what my mom gave us. So it was awesome.
3: So clearly there's uh, you know, a family that's eating together and enjoying food together and you're out in nature. How did you end up at the California School of Culinary Arts in Pasadena? Was there um, a moment in high school when you thought this is definitely what I'm doing or did you kind of stumble into the culinary school path?
4: Yeah, well, it actually was like a, a total epiphany. Like, it was really funny. I was trying to decide what I wanted to do for college, and I had my mind set on going to Cal. I don't really know why. I really loved Berkeley in the Bay Area since I was probably about 14. And I was talking to my mom about what I could study. But keeping in mind that any spare moment I had when I wasn't in school, I was at home cooking. I was cooking for my friends. I was cooking for my sisters. I was cooking for my parents. Like, I... If you asked me what I like doing, I would say photography and cooking. That that was all I did as a teenager and music. Um, And I was with my mom. We were looking at all these different majors and talking about architecture or, you know, things that kind of fit into what I was good at in school and things like that. And as we're doing this, I was cooking (laughs) as we're talking about it. And she just said to me, like, incredibly casually, like, what about culinary school? And it was just like the light bulb went on. I was 16 years old. I put started putting everything away. And she was like, what? What are you doing? And I was like, oh, we need to look at culinary schools. So I'm going to be a chef. Like, that's the answer. Now I know. And that weekend, we went and saw a couple of schools, one of which was um, CSCA. And I enrolled that weekend in school wow. at 16. I had two years of high school left. But I knew my start date. And because I... Um, was so excited about it. They let me come take a class every month leading up to it. So I, the first class I took, I went with my mom, cause she was pretty nervous, you know, sixteen-year-old deciding like yeah. that. And um, it was a chicken fabrication class. And I, like, geeked out so much and had so much fun. And my mom was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is her thing, and It was that's like that. breaking
3: down a chicken and learning about the how to cook various parts of it at yeah. different temperatures or something like that? Or? Yeah,
4: it was mostly just breaking them down. Uh-huh. And I just loved it so much and insisted that from then on we only buy whole chicken so I could keep practicing.
3: Was, um, do you think it was the allure of... Was there some sort of, like, I know something that other people don't know? Was it the accumulation of knowledge? Like, what was so exciting? Why did you like that more than you perhaps liked normal school? What was so appealing about the just the l- curriculum, you know?
4: Learning something that I didn't have any sort of basis around, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I had always cooked, but it was very intuitionally and... You know, I'd read some recipes, but I just liked messing around and like to to actually refine that and learn the technique and understand the anatomy of the animal you know, for example. Like I still love butchery to this day. Even when I was a little kid, we had like a small hometown butcher and I would like go in there with big eyes and watch them break down a whole half of a cow ca- of a cow and my mom would be like this is a little creepy. She really <laughs> likes fire, she really likes knives. Like <laughs> what's going on? Um But yeah, I mean, culinary school, I had such a great experience, but it was right for me. And I don't think everyone needs to go to school. I really believe that, like, even if you do go to school, you should go work in a restaurant before just to really understand what this world and life is like. And I don't think everybody needs to go. I've worked with people who are just as, you know, knowledgeable and experienced as me who didn't go to school. And I think that that was the right path for them. But for me, it really was amazing. I loved it. I thrived. And I was always kind of a a bit of a, like, not the best student because I was bored a lot growing up in school. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't interested because it wasn't something I knew that I would use down the line. But then when I was in culinary school, I was, like, on a roll, dean's list, this, that, you know, top of my class because I was, like, really applying myself. And that was amazing because it changed me as just as a person. It made me feel like I had really found my place in the world.
3: In 2005, as you're continuing to find... Uh, your place and your footing, you join uh, Providence in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is uh, considered one of, if not the finest restaurant in LA, It usually makes many top lists. Jonathan Gold has chosen it as the number one restaurant in Los Angeles. It has two Michelin stars. Uh, it did when they it, were there. It did, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I want to talk about uh, the leader of that kitchen, um, Chef Simrusti. Mm-hmm. Uh he is, uh, I think, well known outside of Los Angeles for being sort of a master of seafood. Although yeah. that's not the only thing that that they do at at the restaurant. Can you tell me about what it was like when you were at Providence? Uh, the vibe and uh, working with him, and what what are some things that you took away from that experience?
4: I, you know, Michael is so amazing, and now the way that I see him is. He has evolved so much, even from when I knew him as a chef and as a business owner and like in Los Angeles, especially. And I just admire him so much. He's such an incredible human being and he's doing so much for um, sustainable seafood that I think he's by far the industry leader in that regard. Um, When I went there, it was for my internship and I rose up pretty quickly there. Even as an intern, I became a line cook a few weeks into it, which was terrifying Um, But they took a really big chance on me And, you know, I'm so thankful for it I started a couple months after they opened the restaurant And it was like, in culinary school It was like all anyone could talk about Was there's going to be this new restaurant With Michael from Water Grill And like, this is going to change LA And, you know, it did It still is the best restaurant in Los Angeles And it's still amazing And every time I go there, it still feels like home And I love it And, um He's an amazing mentor. He's an amazing chef. I, so many things that I've applied in my own direction as a chef, I learned from Michael, not necessarily that he was you know, grooming me at that time. He wasn't. I was just a cook there. But the things I noticed, like the way that he approached um, plating, like he would hold the plate up and look at it from so many different angles and think about it as like you always want the most obvious first bite should be the best bite and he always plated things where you couldn't help but take that exact bite that he wanted you to have so that you could really involve yourself with the dish the way that he intended and he always thinks about the guest's interaction with the food and the ease of eating it and the you know his plateware is so it's so eclectic but it's so thoughtful and I think that's something that sometimes gets lost a little bit is people want it to be the way that they want it and the way that it looks but as a diner you're like i don't know what to do i don't know how to pick this up mm-hmm. or like my fork keeps falling off the plate and he always is so good about recognizing and doing those things and that's one of the things that i really pride myself on and it's hundred percent just from watching him work it made me in my mind be like one day if i'm a chef i'm gonna act that way as well because it really affects the customer interaction with your food
3: there are other things to consider besides the flavor mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the the visual appearance of it on the plate there are other interactions that as a diner Mm -hmm. you think about, but sometimes chefs don't always focus on that. So, uh, we, I will definitely talk about you and opening up your own spot Mm -hmm. and how that's impacted the decisions that you're making at Simone. Uh, I want to continue along talking about some of these, uh, fantastic mentors and other kitchens that you've been involved in. Uh, Paul Shoemaker, uh, you said that Paul taught you not to manipulate food, but to sense it. What did you mean by that?
4: Paul is amazing. And I think that people who know him know that he's just kind of like this. When you meet him, you're like, oh, you're you're talent. You're this crazy talent, but you're also just like a surfer dude from San Diego. And like, you're so passionate, but like it gets overwhelming a little bit. And Paul was always very good about like, don't forget technique. Don't forget to like you know, trust yourself and just, uh, I don't really know how to explain. He mentored me in such a great way. I mean, he's the reason why I became a line cook. He really took a huge chance on me and was just like, you should be better at this. Focus on this, pay attention to these. And that's not how you do the sauce, right? It might go faster, but that's not how you should do it. Like, look at it, like watch it. It's not, you can't force things, you know? And also just to like you want it to taste like what it is. You don't want it to be a carrot that you did six things to and then added carrot juice to make it taste like carrots. You want you want this one yellow carrot that is more earthy than the orange one to taste like the earthy yellow carrot, you know, and just to, like, really preserve. And David also taught me that, you know, very, very adamantly at Manresa, but just... Everywhere I've worked pretty much, it's always been like a naturalist view of, we have incredible product here in California, so make the product shine. You know, don't, don't take it and it doesn't really taste like much, so you do seven different things to it and make it look like what it used to be. It's like, these are so beautiful and imperfect in the sense of they don't all look the same, but each one of them kind of has their own story, and that's the beautiful thing about food. Is everyone has a different nuance to it.
3: I feel like you've struck on something that is, from an outsider perspective, uh, me never having really been in, in a, uh, a kitchen of that kind of caliber, of a Michigan Michelin caliber, is that there's these approaches where it's like heavy, heavy manipulation, where you're not really sure anything that's going on on the plate. And it's very, very modern. There's mm-hmm. a lot of... Uh, foams and things are reconstituted to look like something, but it's not really that. And then there's other approaches that are more like, uh, we have the most incredible X, let's showcase that on the plate. Um, Would you say that all... Uh, the three main kitchens that you've worked in has that made it so that you are going to continue in though in that sort of direction with Simone, which which is like really ingredient focused and the technique is there, but it's not about the technique first, right?
4: Yeah, and, absolutely.
3: And so um, when you're talking about Paul and you're talking about uh, about David, uh, do you think that 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 is more of a California way of behaving, or is it sort of coincidental that you ended up at these places that were so ingredient forward?
4: I think it's innately Californian in a way just because of what's available there, especially in the Bay Area. I do think it's a big part of the ethos, just in general, in the food movement there. But I think that it's in the past 10 years, you know, really become the world cuisine of especially with fine dining it's very like a lot of people have moved away from the heavy molecular and even if it does have a lot of molecular it still is portrayed as being very natural you know like you're saying the technique like wowing you when it hits the table isn't the goal it's the beauty of the food and then what went into it is what's behind it that is kind of the like mystifying part of the art of it, you know, but I do think it's very Californian for sure.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, someone in New York who would be getting credit for this is someone like Dan Barber. And then people Mm -hmm. that don't really understand say like, did he just serve you a single carrot on a plate? But (laughs) there's obviously more things that go into it. But
4: it was a really good carrot. But it's a
3: really, really good carrot. Uh, So you met David, uh, when you spent time shucking muscles with him at an event and I read that you, so you talked with him for hours and then, he invited you to come work for him. So you would go on to work for him and not only go work for him, but really a lot of formative years of your career kind of coalesced at, at Manresa. So I wonder, Absolutely. do you remember anything that you talked about with him that first day? Oh, and yeah. like, how, d- how does that conversation stick out in your mind?
4: I mean, one of the biggest things... That really drew me. I mean, I loved David D- David's dish. It was a yellow bell pepper puree that had these mussels that were shucked raw, rolled in semolina, and then fried to order, perfectly. And then it had a nasturtium foam and nasturtium flowers. And it was so different from LA food at the time that I was very struck by it. And I loved the use of the nasturtiums. Um, but uh, it also just frying off each. Muscle was so delicate and precise, and it was just in a pan. We, like, tempt the oil and kept moving it all night. And one of the things that struck me the most was he was like, listen, for when you start hearing the bubbles, it's done. Because now the steam is escaping from the crust that you made, so listen to it. You have to cook with all your senses. And that was just like, that's so obvious, and we all do that, but I don't think that you often put it into words And so when he said that to me, I was very taken by it. I was like, wow, I love that. I love that that's how you're teaching me. And he said it so just like casually, you know, just like, well, listen. And when you hear the bubbles, because I was like, do you want to set a timer? Do you want to this? He's like, no, they're all going to cook kind of different. Like you have to stay with them and trust yourself and they'll be great. And was very just like trust the food and trust yourself. And that's how you'll get great product.
3: We're going to take a quick break here on The Line, and when we come back, more with Jessica talking about her new restaurant, Simone, but also a little bit more about Manresa. Stick with us here on The Line on Heritage Radio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Castor & Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets.
3: Welcome back to The Line. We're talking with Jessica Largi about her new upcoming restaurant, Simone in the Arts District of Los Angeles. And before we dig into the new restaurant that's going to be opening later this year, I do want to talk a little bit more about David Kinch and Manresa. So while you were there, you rose to the position of CDC in a very fast period of time. I'm curious... uh, do you remember what you felt on the first lineup when you were sort of presented to the staff as like, "All right, Jessica, take over. This is your service." Do you remember what that first service felt like?
4: Um, no, <laughs> to be honest, um, it was a very it was a very whirlwind time. I do remember that um, uh, J.P. Carmona was the chef de cuisine when I was a cook there, and he actually our our sous chef left to go do a project and then our pastry chef left to do a project and then jp was leaving um but the pastry chef uh, belinda who's incredible she went to open her patisserie in san francisco and jp actually took over for about six months as um, pastry chef and so he was very new to being the pastry chef and i was very new to running the kitchen and that week the first week i'm pretty sure if i'm remembering correct ferran adria came in to eat and that I definitely remember because no we pressure. both were like, let's <laughs> switch back. Let's, like, I, you should have this. You des- you should have this. You deserve this. Like, I shouldn't be the one doing this tonight. Um, but I don't really, it's it's strange because I have a very good memory and I'm usually super attached to things like that. But it more was just, um, it was overwhelming in the sense that, you know, it's so different going from being a cook and operating and having a station and you have a lot of ownership over specific things to all of a sudden having to have all the answers for everybody when you don't necessarily know the right answer. And it made me, you know, you question yourself a lot. It takes a while to get comfortable to even say, I don't know, like, let's figure it out together. Um, But it was was a lot because I went pretty much from a cook to chef de cuisine. And there was definitely a period where it was kind of an in-between, and I was a Sue with another one of the cooks who was helping, but he was going to leave too, so it was more like, let's just keep quiet for six months and give Jessica a chance to get her bearings, um, because I wasn't necessarily ready for the position, but I was the one in line, so it was uh, it was a very interesting thing, and, and I now... Going into my project, I don't think I'd ever do that to someone. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would want to offer a lot more guidance and let them kind of figure out management because that's the hardest part is managing people. And, I mean, creating the food was also very intimidating and really hard. Like, to all of a sudden be putting dishes on the Manresa menu, you know, at 25, that's terrifying, you know. So I, I was, was I was uh,
3: wondering, I was going to ask you, you know, how much creative control were you given once you... Uh, achieved that position, you know, like uh, I, I assume that David is there a lot, but also he he, he travels because he's, you know, he does events. He's, he's David. David. Yeah. He's in sort of <laughs> high demand as a famous chef since mm-hmm. that's uh, the, you know, the culinary uh, world that we live in now is that, you know, chefs spend a lot of time talking and they're on the road and they write cookbooks and they promote things. So you sort of become his proxy in the kitchen to a certain extent. You're sort of yeah. executing. His vision and hopefully, maybe, if you're given some free rein, your vision simultaneously. So, so how much were you able to kind of um, do what you wanted as long it was in, was in the tradition of Manresa?
4: I mean, it, it ebbed and flowed always over time. And David and I had a really beautiful collaboration. Like we could finish each other's sentences. We were inspired very similarly by the produce, especially from Love Apple. And you know he and I would go on the walk in, or we'd have these sessions. We had two whiteboards up later on in all of it, but two whiteboards up next to each other in our office across the street from manresa and we would like he would write out these like ideas all over, and I would be like organizing them and placing them into the menu format and adding in my own dishes and We always kind of we would collaborate on dishes there were dishes that were starkly david there were dishes that were starkly mine and there was times where when if he was traveling and doing a lot, the menu would be predominantly mine. And then there were times where it was predominantly his because there was certain things he wanted to have on the menu. But it always was very natural how it ebbed and flowed. And there was one customer in particular who ate at the restaurant constantly, like he hundreds of times. He's dined there. Lucky. Um, he's amazing. <laughs> um, but he was a great resource. And one of the highest compliments I've ever gotten during my time there was he said you're the first person who I can't tell if it's your food or his food and that was great because that's what I wanted you know I wanted the whole meal to kind of be about Manresa and there were a lot of voices behind that you know and so it was great to hear that like it wasn't you know oh this is clearly Jessica oh no this is clearly David you know to the guest I wanted it to be um, I don't know and Like you said, in that kind of position, you are creating for yourself, but you're creating within someone else's vision, which is very interesting and it helps you learn a lot about yourself. But like now what I'm going into is or in the past couple of years as I've been creating and doing stuff, it's it's different to not have those parameters and to be like, I'm what is my voice and vision solely versus what was it at Man Race? It was a very specific thing.
3: Before we move on to uh, your own independent vision, I want to ask you, since you've spent a lot of time around uh, male chefs with Michelin stars, there is a large uh, gap, a large inequality between the amount of male chefs that have Michelin stars and female chefs. And uh, the top 50 restaurant list comes out every year, and it's a wonderful honor, and I believe that last year there were no female chefs represented and that Dominique Crenn is the only female chef currently to have two Michelin stars. I'm not sure if that's actually totally correct but, uh, but there's a huge gap of inequality. Um, since you've spent so much time in these kitchens I'm wondering what's your opinion on that? Does it bother you? Is it something that you never think about? What are your thoughts on that?
4: Um, first of all, there are more female chefs in the U.S. that have two Michelin stars. Okay. Um, there's a few more. There's one in New York, actually, too. Um, at Aquavit, she has two stars. Oh, And right. then at Aquarello in San Francisco as well, she has two stars. Um, Dominique's amazing. You know, they're all incredible female chefs and chefs, I want to say, because that's the bigger point to me. It's, yeah, definitely. You know, I'm, it's... <sighs> I really, in my heart of hearts, want this to become a non-issue because it's not about gender. But there is a huge divide and a huge gap. And it is something that I you know, want to advocate for and that I am passionate about. Um, one of the more striking things to me was that article that came out. I can't remember if it was Time or something where it had this like map of all the chefs and all the protégés and all this stuff. And it was so extensive, and there was not a single woman on that. And that was more interesting to me in a way because it, was, it wasn't it was about accolades and it wasn't about these, like, benchmarks. It was just these are all these incredible people, but there was no women represented, and that's crazy to me. And one thing that I'm really excited about in L.A. is that it's a very female-centric place, you know? There's, like, the Nancy Silverton's and Suzanne Goins and Mary Sue Milligan's, and there's, like, they're, like they still are so important in LA and they've always kind of had this incredible place there and right now there's like this amazing group of young female chefs there and I'm so excited to be a part of it Um, but I really think that uh, it's just crazy to me how I have to answer the question all the time of what's it like to be a female chef and it's like well I cook food what's it like to be a male chef you know
3: you're just a chef I'm just (laughs) a
4: chef but I do think that it's um it's changing a lot and the tide is turning and that's awesome and i'm really happy and proud to be a part of it um i want to you know promote um women moving up that's i think one really hard part of it um i just found my like core kitchen team and Without it being based upon gender at all, it's worked out to where there will be, three female managers and one male. And we're all super excited about it, because the chances of that happening are slim, and that's unfortunate as a statistic. But I'm really excited to be giving opportunity to other women and to be supporting people. And you know, there was a time at Manresa where we were all female except for one male cook. And we didn't do it intentionally. It just happened. But it was kind of this beautiful moment where the chef de cuisine, the pastry chef, the lead cook and the head baker were all like strong 20 something women. And that was awesome because it's. It probably won't happen again for all of us that 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 is a thing.
3: Yeah, I sort of hate to ask the question because I'm sort of perpetuating the story, <laughs> but it's still a story. It's a weird sort of dynamic. Um, so I, I appreciate you you answering it. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to your new spot, how did you find this space in the art district? Did you stumble upon it? Did someone put you on to it? Uh, what is the space uh, like right now and what do you hope it'll materialize into when you open
4: so we wanted to be in the arts district just because there are really cool old buildings and there's a lot of space and we knew that we wanted to do a pretty big project so we looked at a lot of different um, buildings there was actually a building we were so in love with and pretty set on and moving forward with um, but it ended up starting to have some some issues and we got a little nervous so we were like let's just keep looking let's let's look around and that first day we went and saw like four properties and we walked into the space that now will be Simone and when we went into it we were like this place is weird and fun and I think this is it more than the other one that was kind of just like a big empty box this one was like a fully built out crazy advertising photography studio like hardcore 80s decor it was amazing Um, and the downstairs was all the workspace with dark rooms and a shooting bay and all that stuff and the upstairs was where the photographer lived it was his loft and it was beautiful it was outdated but it was beautiful and the money he had put into the space in the 80s was tremendous he had put millions of dollars into building out this building when nobody lived downtown you know when it was a very different place, and um, so we were really excited. It has, like, these weird corridors, and it was a building, and then they built onto the building, so it's... But you, you, people won't be able to tell that, but we know from, like, the way the brick changed and all this stuff, so it was fun to find a place with character, and it's also old. It's from 1909, which is old for L.A., mainly because the earthquake knocked a lot down, and this building survived that earthquake, which is great. Um, and yeah, I mean, the arts district is really becoming a walkable community place, which I really want to be a part of something like that, you know, not just a restaurant amongst a billion other restaurants.
3: How did you end up, uh, connecting with your partners? Were you, uh, actively pitching people on the idea of, Of Simone, uh, did someone sort of come after you and say, "What's your next project? I want to be involved." Like, what was the courting process, and which direction did that courting process go?
4: Um, So they came to me. I quite honestly, my whole life, I never knew if I wanted my own restaurant. I think it's a crazy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, what finally, um, and it took them about four months to convince me to say yes. I was very like, I don't know if I want to go to LA again. I don't know if I even want to do something like this. I just really need time off. And they were so supportive of the time off and just, just amazing partners to have. And that was what made me want to do it was to have the opportunity to not just go into someone's built out space and like take over and just do a menu and be a chef it was I can build an incredible environment here I can have a lot of say from the ground up and to be able to really create something that's not just for myself but for the community for the employees for the guests with a lot of intention and to kind of be able to have the support to foster a really great work environment that's what I really wanted to do if I was going to do a restaurant for me it's Not about being the best chef, it's about creating a positive space to create within because I know that that's what will make me the best chef I can be.
3: So you're going to have quite a few touch points for people to dine in the restaurant. There's a bar. There's Mm -hmm. normal seating. There's going to be a small tasting counter as Mm -hmm. well. Six seats, eight seats. Six seats. seats. So it seems like you're trying to do a lot. And it seems like you are going to uh, have maybe different price points and and styles that are going to be maybe coming out of the kitchen. I assume that the tasting menu is going to be a little bit different than the normal a la carte menu. Yeah, absolutely. Is that fair to say? So uh, how are you? planning to uh sort of manage all that because now you're now you're in charge of the restaurant you're executing everything <laughs> yeah. you're, you're the buck really stops with you but also uh, you're going to be putting out this tasting menu a couple times a night or uh, um, a couple times a week a uh, cu-
4: couple nights a week and um you know i love fine dining that is my that's what i've always done and i really love it and i have a soft spot for it but i it was more important to me to build a restaurant I would go eat at all the time. And I want it to be approachable and I want it to be inclusive for everybody to be able to come and eat. I don't want you to feel like you have to come do a crazy, you know, expensive tasting menu to eat my food. I want you to be able to come in and just get a salad or get a glass of wine at the bar or, you know, come in and have a great lavish dinner in the dining room or come to the the counter in the kitchen because that I really want to kind of strip away the pomp and circumstance of tasting menus and kind of challenge myself in a different way because I cook right across from you. Like my, the table that people sit at um, is right across from where I'll be standing and talking to you all night. And I'm going to hand you your food most of the time and I'm going to include you in it. And I can explain the dishes in a completely different way. I can talk to you about like how I made the sauce and what's exciting about it. Or these turnips I found at the market and really get to be like my true geeky food chef self to people and have that be the interaction they have with it instead of, you know, sitting in a quiet designed dining room where they are told three of the ingredients that are in the dish, but they have no idea how it was made or what, you know, what went into it. And I think it's something I've really fallen in love with is talking to guests and having the interaction with them. And, you know, it's easy to hide in the kitchen, but I want my cook's and and my chefs who will be working with me to know that, like, it's such a positive interaction to talk to the guests and be a part of the meal with them instead of just, like, sending it out the door and putting your head back down and working. And I've really grown to love that, to sharing the experience and being approachable to people. You know, I don't want to be this, like, chef hidden away in her kitchen who people can't ask a question to. Like, I'm more likely to be like, oh, did you like that? Do you want me to show you how I made it? <laughs> like. Um, So I want it to be fun. I want it to be enjoyable. And I know it is a lot. And I don't really know because I can't. And I have a lot of ideas and theories. But I don't know how it's all going to work until I have the space and I'm actually doing it. But I also have a really incredible team. And I think that all of us are just so excited to be able to do a lot and to not be pigeonholed into one specific thing. And to have, you know, the moment that you walk into the space, you're in the bar And there's a giant window. And you see the entire kitchen right when you walk into the restaurant. It's not open. There's glass. But we're always going to be transparent to people. And you can always, like, see us and see us having a great time and really enjoying what we're doing and keeping it um, just fun. I mean, people are so intrigued and engrossed with restaurants and cooking these days. And so I kind of want to be a part of that with them instead of being annoyed by it.
3: the other the flip side from the the cooking and the creative conceptualization of a restaurant as you being a partner is that there's money and contractors and staffing and mm-hmm. employee handbooks and yeah. all these things that as a cdc you've definitely dealt with a lot of these and you've touched them before but perhaps not at the at the level where Again, you're the one who's making that final final decision on everything. Mm-hmm. What has been one of the most surprising and challenging aspects of the the build out and also the conceptualization but not necessarily on the on the food customer experience side. Sort of like mm-hmm. the back end stuff. What has really uh has there been anything that's kind of caught you off guard that you've been while well, you've been in the opening process?
4: I mean, it's more that like You can dream up so many ideas and then they have to go and check them against the building codes and the health codes and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, this would be so magical and we can do this. And then it's like, no, you absolutely cannot do that. You're opening a restaurant in Los Angeles and the restrictions here are very, very specific. Um, So that's been interesting. There's also, you know it's a big space. So choosing to have, um, wooden floors or to have like all these other things, because price point wise, it was a huge thing. And it was like, okay, we'll do concrete. You know, it's like making the compromises and also collaborating with people on designing the whole space and what the concept's going to be and everything. You know, I have autonomy in a lot of ways of the kitchen and the food, but I wanted it to be collaborative on all the other levels and you know it wasn't it's not like I got to decide that it was just I wanted it to be like that because I wanted to learn from it and also that's a challenge in itself having more than one person have an opinion about what it looks like and what the flow is and all of those things and it's been a lot I mean the construction you know it's you have to pass so many inspections and there's so many things that come up and You know, we cut into the concrete slab to start doing the plumbing, and we found another concrete slab. And things like that happen. You know, Dave Posey, when he was building out Elska, they tore down a wall and found a wall. Like a cinder block wall. And I sent, when he sent me that when they were building, and I sent him back, like when you cut up a concrete floor and find more concrete, like
3: (laughs) you just, you never know. You never know. You never really know what they're going to let pass and what they're going to say. There's no way you can do that. And some things seem like the biggest deal, and it takes a day to get approval. And then other times you wait for a month for uh, someone to inspect your gas line, right? Yeah,
4: but you know, the bigger picture is like you could get, you know, frustrated with all these things and, and, you know, let it affect you, or you can just stay true to the fact that you want to do it right. So it's going to be okay that it's taking longer than you expected.
3: Do you have any elements of the menu that you can share? Is there any sort of, I know, I assume it's going to be very, very seasonal, but is there any flavors or spices that you're very excited about that you hope to incorporate in the menu? Is there a specific maybe dish that you're workshopping right now or playing around with that you can share with the listeners that's something that's been exciting to you to be playing around with
4: oh yeah I mean I can tell you I mean there's some dishes that will definitely be on on the menu um yeah if
3: you can take us through one or some flavors associated with it
4: absolutely there's this one dish I'm doing it this weekend at the dinners we're doing here in New York but it's uh it's a sweet potato dish and I've kind of worked on it and done it at events over the last year and it all came about because a friend of mine had me over for dinner and made me a roasted sweet potato and put straight tahini on it and I loved it. I was like oh my gosh this is a thing. Like this works so harmoniously. It's amazing. And I made it into this dish that's had several variations but I think the one right now is actually the best and it just works with what the season is. So it's a tahini sauce that's made with a little bit of a chickpea miso and lemon juice and it's very like rich and creamy um, and emulsified and then it has the roasted sweet potatoes I take shallots and cook them down with lemon juice and harissa and let that kind of sit and marinate for a few days so it's this like spicy rich sauce and dress mustard greens in that and then blister off shishito peppers and make sweet potato chips as well out of purple ones and everyone always thinks they're beet chips but they're sweet potatoes and fry those up in coconut oil. And um, then there's nasturtium. So it's like this peppery, rich, creamy dish that has a couple of Middle Eastern influences, but isn't a Middle Eastern dish at all. Um, And I really love it. And it's always everyone's favorite. It's kind of amazing. And it's something that came about in such a like natural way of something that I tasted and was like, this is incredible. We need to build this out. And, um, I love that. And that's also what I'm really excited about with Simone is changing the way that I create over the last couple of years into more like I've cooked at home a lot because I haven't been working in a restaurant and kind of defining like, what do I even like to eat at home? I've been working since I was 18 years old. I have no idea. Usually on my days off, I eat pho or ramen or pizza, you know, something easy tacos now because I'm back in LA, um, But I love eating food like that because this dish is it presents very like complicated and and well thought out and everything. But it's actually really simple and coincidentally vegan. And no one can have any restrictions against it unless they're allergic to sesame. But it's great because it's a dish that is kind of universal. Everyone loves it and it just works out. And I'm really happy with it.
3: We're excited to see that dish on the menu at Simone when it opens later this year. For those listening that are making plans to go out eat in LA mm-hmm. in the upcoming months, hopefully you'll be open quite soon. Tell them where can they find you so that they can find out where Simone is and uh, when it's going to be open. Is there a website and what's the address?
4: Uh, we're working on the website right now, um, but you can follow us on Instagram. The handle is Simone Arts District. Um, it's 449 South Hewitt. It's in the arts district next door to a restaurant called Earth Cafe, which is pretty well known. So it's easy to find. It's only like a two block street. So it's a little weird, but that's kind of what the arts district is. It's a funky little place. So I like that we're, we're in that little enclave of all those things.
3: Well, we'll look forward to checking that out when it opens. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: This has been The Line on Heritage Radio. See you next Tuesday for another episode, 11 a.m. every week on Heritage Radio.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.